Happiness and freedom begin with a clear understanding of one principle. Some things are within our control and some things are not. It is only after you've faced up to this fundamental rule and learned to distinguish between what you can and can't control that inner tranquility and outer effectiveness become possible. This is from probably one of the most important books you're going to read, The Art of Living, The Classical Manual on Virtue, Happiness, and Effectiveness by Sharon Libel. It's a modern-day translation of Epictetus and his book, The Manual. And so a lot of my upcoming book, Max Truth, and the idea around it as I'm distilling the philosophy, I keep coming back to this book and to Epictetus. He is my favorite Stoke philosopher. Seneca's good. He's a little, uh, he's got a different perspective. Uh, Marcus Aurelius is good. He has kind of a, a little bit of a, almost a morose style. And Epictetus is just straight hardcore. This is truth. Take it or leave it. And that's why he appeals to me the most. And I also think he's the closest to truth. He covers more of the, the base foundational principles. And that's what Max Truth is. It's the ultimate truth of human existence, that everything in your reality, in your life, since you were born to the day you will die, is your responsibility because it's in your control and thus it's your fault. It's an inconvenient truth that most people don't want to hear because they want to blame others for their station in life. They want to blame the rich or this party or that party or whatever. They want to blame their upbringing or they want to blame somebody that hurt them. They just want to be victims because it's easier to be a victim. And being a victim appeals to your base primal instincts of fairness and equality that are built into humans because it's a survival adaptation. It's what mother nature figured out. It's kind of the, the good and the bad part as it goes with all duality of our species. We don't like things being unequal. If you actually look at both ends of the spectrum, this is why bullying exists. Bullying is a way for our species to basically weed out the weak, you know, the way we perceive it. I'm not saying they are weak. I'm saying the way that, that the primal human nature perceives somebody, that if they're lower on the status totem pole, then they are a threat to the group. So therefore we have to bully this person to either get them up to par, to fit in, to join the group, to think like us, to dress like us, to act like us, to talk like us because that's best for survival of the group. And then on the other end, you have the rich or the powerful or this or that always being pulled down and attacked by those that are underneath because they perceive that as being unfair as well. Our ancestors practiced fierce egalitarianism, which basically meant nobody was above anybody else or below anybody else. And that's a distinction that you don't really hear people talk about when they're talking about the ancestral point of view. They're always about, oh, everybody's equal, that's great. But what about people that are perceived as lower down the totem pole? because they're weaker or they're different or whatever. That's why we have things like bullying, like gossip, like shame, like ridicule. That's why humans care so much about what other people think. Even when we can consciously convince ourselves or remind ourselves, or we understand it, that people's opinions don't matter. It's still freaking hard. Now, I find myself super, super on the end of the spectrum that doesn't care, and I get a little bit better at caring. I'll give you an example. We were at this Christmas tree cutting down farm. It's actually a really cool business. I wonder what they make, but it, they seem to be doing pretty well. <laughs> they grow big fields of trees and then you go and cut it down and then they charge you. I mean, my tree is like 70 or 80 bucks. And then it probably takes like what, one or two years to grow. And then like every two, so every two years, basically, if they plot out it the right way, they're making bank on these trees. It's pretty impressive as a business. And they only have to have employees and be doing that for, you know, Christmas time every year. I love businesses like that. But we were there. It was a 45-minute drive to Elgin, Texas, outside of Austin. And my back was 
bothering me. And, you know, in the mornings, I don't like sitting. I like to walk, get up, move. My body just does not want to sit early in the mornings. We get to the tree farm waiting for Allison's parents to show up to join us with the kids. And there's a playground. I'm kind of like stretching, standing there watching. And then I think, wow, I should do some of my exercises. I got the, this one windmill exercise where you spread your legs, you go on a wall, you put your hands out wide like a windmill, and then you lean to one side and bend and look up. And it really gets the outside of the hip and the lower back, which is my problem area. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go do that. I go over and do that. It's a fence that's by the playground. So there's other families around, other people, kids running around, whatever. And you can't help but feel like everybody's looking at you. Another example, just like doing arm circles, which is another exercise I do for my back routine. If I just did that, standing next to my kid, did arm circles, I mean, obviously people would look at me, like, who cares? So what? They look at me. Like, what is he doing? Oh my God. Like, you know, it's one of those things that when you analyze it, when you think about how little it matters, how it absolutely changes nothing, it's objectively meaningless. No one's actually going to do or say anything to you for doing it. It's not illegal or whatever. And if you want to do it because for your back or you want to exercise, do whatever, but it's still hard to do. I mean, I remember on that fence doing that windmill exercise, you're supposed to hold it for a minute, just out of cold. And I was like 20 seconds in and I kept feeling the urge to stop. I kept feeling the urge to stop doing this because I know people are looking, but I don't care if people are looking. Like if we talk about it rationally, I don't give a shit. Primally, deep down underneath my biology, my physiology, because it's all connected, biology, physiology, psychology. It wants to stop because it feels like it's doing something to stand out and that's different. And it's really hard to do. You know, I got mad respect for Diogenes. He was hardcore about just not giving a care about anybody. He lived in a barrel. Uh, He would actively do things to bring ridicule and scorn upon himself so that he would, you know, I forget the quote, but it's basically like, I want to be reminded to care about things that matter and to not care about things that don't matter and people's opinions don't care. So I'm going to do these things to be ridiculed. So I don't care. I get training and not caring. Like he would do things where everybody's walking out of a theater, for example, or a building or whatever. And he would go at the end of a, I guess, a play or, I mean, I guess there was a play and there's a building. I guess that makes sense. Or a theater. And he would walk into the entrance as everybody was trying to walk out together. And, you know, like just everybody looking at him like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Whatever. Alexander the Great found him, the apocryphal story. He asked him, Diogenes, I'm the you know, most powerful man on the planet or something like that. You know, what do you want? What do you desire? He said, could you move a little to the side? You're blocking the sun. He was basically laying on the side of the street sunbathing. And Alexander was like taken aback by this man. Uh, his generals, I believe that was that his generals that were with him afterwards said, oh, he's a joke and they're trying to make fun of him. And he said something to the effect of, if I wasn't Alexander, I would want to be Diogenes. So he had mad respect for this dude. I do too. Let's get back to this core idea here. So the Stokes figured this out a long time ago, this truth with a capital T. And this is what I call Max truth. It's that everything is within your control. Therefore, it's all your responsibility and fault. Now, because everything in your reality is within your control and everything outside of yourself is not, you really only have one choice to accept what's not and focus on what is. All of human suffering, like I literally believe this, all of human suffering is based on the fact that human beings have a tendency to place things upon others and things that are outside of their control, like obsessing over the past or the future, worrying about what this person did or might do or whatever. And then everything in between is a result of not accepting max complete ownership. That is the result of max truth. That is all us and us alone. 
So what we do is we try to go out into the world and we try to bend things that are unbendable and then we get angry when they don't bend the way we want them to bend or we do something and we think we did what's right and then this person or that thing should happen because we did what's right and then it doesn't happen. We cause ourselves suffering because we can't accept it as is. Everything around us is what it is. Nothing is as we want it to be. And if we find something that is the way we want it to be, it just so happens that the thing that is matches up with the thing that we want it to be. <laughs> it's kind of funny, and you know, one of those deep logic rabbit holes that's hard to really like, not even a rabbit hole, it's, a, it's like a logic loop, infinite loop that is hard to understand while at the same time being very simple to understand. It's a very strange duality, almost a paradox. So that you're training in max truth. It's your daily interpretation of everything through this control versus no control framework. And again, this is where we run into problems because humans think we can control things or we don't really understand how most things we can't control or whatever, or we don't even think to ask or we're being emotional and we don't try to, whatever. Now let's just take the example of something in your past. Something in your past happened. It was an unfortunate event. It causes you pain. You still think about it and you suffer. Maybe you even have a good cry about it every so often, whatever. And, you know, in a lot of ways, some of those every so often being upset about something or having a release that is healthy. But what I see more often than not is people don't ever accept things. So what they do is they revisit them. They revisit something that happened and they don't create an understanding to it, an acceptance of it. Uh, they don't truly unpack it and let it go. And what it does is it causes them suffering. It causes them suffering in more ways than one. It causes them suffering every time they consider it and think about it and obsess over it. And guess what? They can't change it. The past is there. It's gone. And they don't consider how their stories about it are affecting them now and moving forward. And usually what happens is we compensate. We create these bad ideas about how the world works, what we should do or what we shouldn't do, or even worse, stories about ourselves that are based on some BS interpretation of something that happened. I'm just this. I'm just that. It's not fair because I grew up this way. My parents were that, whatever. It's all bullshit. These are literal stories. And like any story that you create, you can edit, you can change it. You can completely let it go. The other thing about the memory, which is so fascinating, we've already proven it's not a hard drive that you just recall files. It's not like opening up a clip on your computer or a, or a photo with a perfect high def representation of this event that happened. Your memory changes every time you recall it based on what you're thinking, feeling, based on things you've learned, based on just the now. So the Buddhists meditate as a means to end suffering. That's their strategy. They want to get to that peaceful state of nirvana where you don't think about anything, you're completely in the moment, and that ends all suffering. And then from that follows inner peace. And they meditate a lot to do this. I mean, we're talking hours because that is how wild of an animal the human brain is. It does not want to be tamed. It does not want to be caged. It wants to default to what mother nature programmed it to do, which was to gossip and judge and shame and in implement fierce egalitarianism, as we talked about. If you don't train your mind, your life will be just as unpredictable and wild. And to train in max truth, a fundamental reality, mathematically provable fact of your existence, it's to every day ask yourself, what is in my control and what is not? And then to use that information to live more effectively and with less suffering. So the action here, as you go about each day, you are constantly aware and analyzing your thoughts and actions. 
you remain steadfast aware of your inner world so you can objectively respond to the outer productively. And like any endeavor, the more you train, the better you get. Now, if you haven't read any of the Stoics, I highly recommend this book, Art of Living. Again, it's a modern interpretation. So it's by Sharon Libel, I believe her name is. And you could also go back to the Inshidiran, the manual by Epictetus. I'm sure I'm Inshidiran. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. That's really good too. But it's again, it's in the old speak. It's an old translation. So I kind of like the modern updated simple language of Sharon's book. So I've gifted that book 15, 20 times maybe. I have a bunch of copies. I have a Kindle copy. I have like five copies in my office here. It's that good. It's just one of those books that are timeless, that are evergreen. Highly recommend you read that. And they're short pages, so you could read daily. One thing about Stoic training is you have to read and maybe write and meditate and do these different things. Think a lot because it requires reinforcement. This is training for the mind. Like training for the mind physically where you get in an ice bath or you go in the cold or you do things like that, that's training for the mind for sure. But what about training for the mind and controlling your thoughts and controlling how you respond to things? When you break something or something happens and you don't get emotional and you respond stoically, you say, okay, this thing has happened. What's my best course of action? It's not to get upset here. That doesn't improve the situation. Getting upset here does not clean up the milk that was just spilled in the glass that's all over the ground. Going huffing and puffing does absolutely nothing except raise my anxiety levels and my blood pressure and all these different things and causes stress. You can get to a point where things like that, you don't respond. You just look at it, you pause, and then you fix it. You do what you need to do based on what has happened. And then of course, you level up in layers. So you got problems at work with coworkers, with people, with different things. You have some uncertainty about this, a lawsuit or whatever. That stuff gets murky and hard because they well up in your brain, your subconscious, you know, when you're dreaming, uh, you get bouts of fear, bouts of this, whatever. It takes time and it takes a lot of practice and training. And every opportunity that comes up, every time there's fear or there's some problem in your life, you have an opportunity to train, to get better, to analyze that thing, to pull it out. And for me, logic is always very useful. So if I take something out and I write about it and I do like a pros and cons list or I do a logic tree, like I do a, if this happens, then that, which is super massive. I've had friends that, a couple that are in lawsuits or they've been serving things like that. And I try to give them, okay, understand what will happen and not happen in this possible lawsuit. And then I give them some tips about how the legal system works and how it's corrupt and it's a joke. And all, all that happens is lawyers get rich. It's, it's a complete another scam. But you can also understand how it works to play the game a certain way. And most of what people need in a lawsuit, if you have no experience with the law, is you need to not be afraid. Because when you're afraid, you don't act rationally and the other side will take advantage of you. Especially if the other side is coming at you and they have lawyers or they have more experience in this stuff, whatever. Like any endeavor, the more you train, the better you get. So that's it for today's Max Truth lesson. This is the Better Human Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Stuckert. I appreciate you being here. Get on the Better Human newsletter over at thebetterhuman.co. That's twice a week. And I'll see you in the next one.